0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Emily Cawthorn. If I say the word gothic, the first thing that probably springs to mind is Count Dracula, or maybe a ghost or a werewolf or something lurking in the dark corners of a spooky castle decorated with cobwebs, skulls and blood-red curtains. But since its emergence, the fantastical creations of the gothic imagination have been used to explore much more real societal fears. Roger Luckhurst is the author of an illustrated history of the gothic and I spoke to him to find out more. Your new illustrated history of the gothic covers a huge range of materials so we have everything from architecture, we have novels, hammer horror, anime and one thing that you say in the introduction is that it, it used to be easy to define the gothic which infers to me it's not that easy to define anymore. How would you define the gothic?
2: It's always a really difficult question. And, um, you know, there are there are whole academic careers devoted to um, arguing this point, as you can imagine. Uh, I tend to think of it as it's an imagination of of a pre-modern uh, world. So we think of the Gothic as medieval architecture and the medieval kind of worldview. Uh, the world is full of demons, full of supernatural kind of things. Um, we are menaced by uh, naughty nuns and evil monks. Uh, and there's always a gibbous moon and it's always, you know, um, pointed architecture uh, and so on. And that really is a projection backwards from the early 19th century. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, people are trying to Marshal and understand the, the what we would call the pre-modern world. Uh, and they start to call all of that Gothic. And if you're an architect, this is a really great thing because it means that you can embed architecture in a really long history uh, and it becomes a very positive national architecture in England. So that's why our Houses of Parliament were rebuilt in Gothic form is because, you know, here, here is the long tradition, the mother of all parliaments. It, this is where democracy... Uh, was born and it's centuries old. Complete invention. But nevertheless, you know, that's that's helpful. But if you're a writer, the Gothic is full of these really quite frightening pre-modern worlds. You know, so the supernatural, demons can appear. Uh, we think we're over this. We think we're rational. We think we're modern and enlightened. But actually, the Gothic in writing form becomes the place where all of our nightmares go.
0: So it's interesting because we're talking about connected but often slightly different phenomenon here so a lot of people i think would think of the gothic purely as vampires and werewolves spooky things that go bump in the night but it's not always as simple as gothic equals scary is it
2: yeah, that's right. The Gothic is something that I always say is like a dream. It's a, It has a dream logic, which is that um, things can turn into their opposites at a moment's notice. Or you, know, you can be in one room and you open into another impossible space, but because you're in a dream, it sort of makes sense. And that's the same with the meaning of the Gothic, actually. As soon as you fix one down, it begins to flip over and, and, and escape from you. And given that the Gothic is, is all about transgression or, or or breaking beyond boundaries, uh, it's appropriate, I suppose, that we can never quite define it because it's always breaking out. It's always going somewhere else.
0: And hopefully we'll talk about some of the ways in which it's it's changed and evolved and mutated over time um, later in the conversation. So you mentioned the 19th century earlier, uh, which I think is often hailed as, as a golden age of Gothic. Is that fair? And is that when we first see this trend emerge?
2: The, the gothic revival in architecture is, is very much from the 1720s onwards, actually, so a little bit earlier. The first gothic novel is thought to be, uh, although there's often arguments about this, but thought to be Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, which is 1764. And there was a huge boom in uh, gothic, or what they're called, terror novels in the 1790s. So people might have heard of Anne Radcliffe, who really was the absolute superstar of her period. Um, like J.K. Rowling, that kind of important. Uh, And and you've got this huge burst of of Gothic novels in the 1790s. And then perhaps the other really big famous text is uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is 1818. Uh, And then there's often an argument that the Gothic kind of goes away or disperses into other forms. So it kind of enters into a bit of Dickens here and there, a bit of Wilkie Collins. And then it really comes storming back in the late century. century with Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula or uh, the island of Dr Moreau, all of these sort of monstrous modern horrors that emerge at the end of the 19th century. So it's it it's the golden age of ghost stories, definitely, the golden age of um, the emergence of these really modern myths like the vampire, vampires as, as this kind of effete aristocrat appears in 1819 clearly modelled on Lord Byron, uh, and then it kind of recurs again with um, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. So you can see that its kind of beginning and end of the 19th century are really important. And then slap bang in the middle uh, of the 19th century is John Ruskin, uh, who wrote a very famous book called The Stones of Venice, which argued that Gothic is the perfect form of architecture. It's organic, it's natural, it, it articulates faith. Uh, So for him, having lots of crenellations and knobbly bits and finials and all that sort of stuff uh, was for him absolutely quintessential to the Gothic architecture revival, which is why we tend to think of all of those um, houses that uh, have pointed arches and things in in England, certainly. But across the world, actually, carpenter Gothic in America, uh, you get Gothic churches in India and Australia. So really, that's the point where it goes global.
0: And do we have any sense of why Gothic captured everybody's imagination at these certain times in the nineteenth century? What other intellectual movements was it was it tapping into?
2: That's, I mean it is really really good question and in a way it's uh, what, what we're always trying to trying to wonder why the 1790s say is the first boom uh, well the argument is that you know in in England uh here is a Protestant country uh, that's just got itself back together after a period of revolution and then right across uh the channel is the French Revolution which is descending into the terror and lots of people being guillotined and and you know this this kind of monstrous overthrow of aristocracy see uh really really unnerved people so you can see that there's a very kind of dri- politically driven idea behind the gothic all of that stuff that's happening on the continent uh all of these nasty monks and uh priests um, are um basically you know tyranny tyranny might be returning so you get that very strongly in the um 1790s and so again in the 1890s lots of different contexts there but you know immigration into england but also into america too beginning to cause anxieties about the purity of the nation so you have someone like count dracula arriving from the very edge of christian europe buying a house that's nearest as possible to buckingham palace you know right in the center of london to for this kind of sleeping monster to kind of awake and contaminate us all so you can see there's lots of uh, potential ways of reading different things at different times. There's a huge boom in the 1970s in England and America. There's a huge boom right now, arguably, and that might be worth talking about too.
0: Let's talk then a bit about Gothic's global spread. So in the book, you you describe Gothic's global spread as uncontainable as a zombie virus, which I thought was a a nice way of putting it. Why do you think it has proven so popular?
2: (sighs) Well, I think it's a modern uh, mythology. So it's like a toolkit, um, which which provides you with a set of images and a set of narratives, which means that you can adapt them in incredibly um, uh, flexible ways. So that um, in England, say, the vampire kind of emerges as this figure of perhaps foreign contamination, um, but elsewhere, you know, the vampire figure, this thing returning from from the dead can lock into local narratives of superstition. So you get vampire stories everywhere in Thailand, uh, in Korea, in Japan, in Australia, all the way around the world. And we all have, different cultures have this kind of need for these sorts of transgressive figures somewhere hovering between life and death which allow people to kind of work through, in some ways, what it means to be human. What are the limits of this? And if you go through a revolution, say, in biology, which is what we're doing at the moment, you know, what are the limits of genetic manipulation? What are the what are the anxieties around that? Then suddenly the Gothic can provide you with extraordinary kind of set of of devices to explore that idea. So that's why I think it's like a modern mythology, lots of bits and pieces that you can pick and choose from and and turn into different hybrids across the world.
0: As you say, I think that the vampire is quite a good way of illustrating that, and I wonder if you could just give us some examples of uh, vampires from across the globe and how that figure's been used to explore different anxieties or different themes in different places.
2: Yeah, I mean, the vampire is a really interesting case because it's, it, it's a word that emerges from the Balkans in, and, and it r- arrives in the English language. We can track this very precisely in the 1730s. And that was from reports which were about um, strange goings on in, in, in very rural parts of, uh, of Romania and, and Turkey and places like this. There's this odd superstition of the peasants who are not you know, educated, who believe that one of their neighbours is coming back from the dead. And killing off their cattle, or, or or preying on people in the town, and so it was seen as uh, as a form of you know what, what a ridiculous bunch of uh, peasants they are. But then it travels rather like you know, Count Dracula himself travels from the edges of Europe into the centre. So you get these stories happening from the early 19th century of vampires kind of arriving uh, and, and being these contaminating figures. Um, but then you also see that idea, there are various forms of, of uh, this undead creature in lots of different cultures. So you get this in in uh, even all the way back to um, Viking mythology and, uh, and so on, you see this kind of undead creature happening Happening in 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 Siberia or in or in Africa and so on, uh, and it's nearly always a kind of way of dealing with um, the foreigner, the anxious the anxieties about foreigners who are kind of coming in, uh, taking our jobs, taking our women, uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of ideas. Um, and then recently, I think you're able to think through. Uh, things about um, diseases of the blood. So lots of vampire stories about AIDS in the 1980s when it was this um, terrifying disease that was incurable uh, and right now of course um our zombies and vampires um feel like uh they prepared us actually for covid you know this this idea of the pandemic um zombieism is a form of pandemic in many 21st century versions of it and so is the vampire so you can see how it kind of changes and shifts across time. And it's, again, an incredibly malleable device uh, for people to be able to um, articulate anxiety, really, and manage it.
0: That was actually going to be one of my next questions uh, about how gothic is used to explore anxieties of the age. You gave some great examples there, but I wonder if you could give us some some more
2: <laughs> basically yeah. okay so so i mean I, I i think for example very recently you know there there the, there has been a lot of uh, say horror films which which do directly address um key anxieties of our time so You know, one of um, the first uh, horror films to emerge around the time of the financial crash in 2008 uh, was was this brilliant B-movie called Drag Me to Hell, which starts with someone uh, refusing um, to to extend a mortgage, and she is cursed. And then everything kind of erupts from from that point of view. She gets completely kind of harassed, this um, poor old bank person. And in a way, it's just a hugely exaggerated version of of economic insecurity. Um, uh, and you can look at films like uh, *Get Out*, which people might have have seen. You know, Jordan Peele's brilliant little film, which is emerging about the same time as *Black Lives Matter*, uh, exploring the idea that actually an incredibly wealthy white population might literally be preying on the bodies of of, of black people. So there is a kind of explicit use of of those um, contexts in in horror, and sometimes it's really obvious, and sometimes it's really um, not. It's really very strange and allegorical, and you you're, you're invited to try and interpret what it might really be about. Which is why um, I think there is such a vast industry of of gothic critics like me, because you're you're presented with these texts and you just think, "What the earth is that about?" <laughs> is usually your question.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm interested that you brought up Get Out there, which obviously, as you say, is about anxieties around racism. Because also earlier you mentioned how the vampire, for example, in the Gothic was used to explore fears of foreigners. So there's quite a double-edged sword there that Gothic could be adapted and evolved to to kind of explore completely polarised themes.
2: Yes, absolutely. The Gothic is both very, very kind of radical and subversive, but also very conservative and in in a way someone like um, Stephen King is quite explicit about saying actually my horror is consolatory because there's a kind of resolution to uh, the threat or the menace that he invokes in so many of his books Um, and and he sees it as a conservative thing Uh, whereas other people think well it's constantly subversive you know it's it's sexually transgressive it 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 gives uh, all kinds of voice to um, the the unnameable the monstrous. Uh, the Voices to Women It's a very popular um, genre of in, with women writers right from the 18th century onwards. Uh, it's, it, it allows you to articulate anxieties at the age of, uh, of colonialism and the empire. So Rudyard Kipling wrote lots of stories about haunting in India, which is clearly a kind of Uh, way of navigating this this kind of limit of empire. So yeah, it can be really uh, radical, it can be really conservative. And perhaps one of the most important figures for that debate is H.P. Lovecraft, hugely influential, hugely important, does lots and lots of nasty, squidgy, um, tentacular uh, horrors in his fictions. But he's also... An absolutely pathological racist as well, and, and quite openly so in his letters. He was uh, someone who was a nativist, who believed that my immigration was was completely destroying America. This was in the 1920s. America first was his view um, in, in many ways. Uh, and that's been a real difficulty for people who um, love his fiction, love his imagination, but how the hell do you deal with the fact that it might be actually coming from a very bad place from this kind of racist view? So you get Um, really recently, fantastic African-American rewritings of Lovecraft, as if they're kind of seizing the opportunity, taking uh, these monsters off uh, Lovecraft and transforming them in really very clever ways. So uh, someone like Victor Laval has written uh, The Ballad of Black Tom, which is a a rewriting of a lovecraft story or some people might have seen the tv series lovecraft country which makes it an explicit sense that actually the whole of his horror imagination is coming from a white supremacy place so those sorts of uh, uh, of subversive plays with that are all about conservative versus radical it's always the question you ask about gothic fiction
0: yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that radical potential from a slightly older perspective. So when, when the first Gothic stories, for example, were emerging, um, and as you say, they did contain more potential to be sexually transgressive, transgressive in terms of gender norms. Was there a backlash to that? Were people worried about this new, horrifying, scary uh, fiction?
2: Yeah, they, they, so, so the debates we have now about, um, say, video nasties in the 1980s or the or the bad influence of games, uh, you know, very violent games on children, it goes all the way back to the 18th century, actually. And the, the, these uh, novels that appeared were called terror novels for a reason, which is that, you know, they were terrorising their readers. And they were particularly concerned, many commentators, that it was women who were reading these books and that their imaginations were being inflamed in all kinds of dangerous sorts of ways which of course they were that was the whole point of them they, they were very kind of you know titillating and exciting um, so you get people like Jane Austen who wrote Northanger Abbey actually is the satire on all of that stuff but then people like uh, a very famous poet like Samuel Taylor Corridge was completely outraged by um, a book by Matthew Lewis called The Monk, which came out in 1796. This was seen as the kind of height of licentious, naughty, um, sexually explicit uh, kind of work. Uh, and he was completely enraged by um, the fact that this was you know out in the world. And Anne Radcliffe actually stopped writing because she felt that she'd produced this kind of subversive version of it. Um, but I mean, you know, someone like Coleridge was actually most enraged about the fact that he couldn't get as much money from his from his writing as Matthew Lewis. You know, it was like, ah, I really hate this stuff, but I wish I could write it. And that's quite a common sort of view. You know, yeah. someone like Henry James at the end of the 19th century. Oh, H.G. Wells, your writing is awful. I wish I could write like that and get as much money. So, you know, there's a there's a kind of twi- twist around that. So it goes all the way back to the 18th century. People are always very concerned about the the dangerous, bad influence of Gothic imagination on readers. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think the '70s is a is a kind of rupture in the in the in the period in England. There was um, a huge depression, uh, social breakdown, the rise of punk music, um, the fears of uh, of decline, uh, collapse of, uh, of of the long post-war boom. So you know, horror is really good for addressing the kind of miseries of that period. So,
1: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored, Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now,
0: visit hersheyland.com slash twizzlers. Something that's really important to the gothic imagination is uh, landscape and setting what kind of settings have uh, been recurrent throughout the, the uh, history of Gothic?
2: Yes, one of the things that I had to sort of try and manage in this book, um, you know, do the whole of the history of the Gothic across the world in about 55,000 words. Uh, how, how the hell do you do that? Well, I, I, in the end, I came up with this idea of thinking about a compass. So, so we associate the Goths as, as a kind of tribal um, dark age race f- with the north, and actually someone like Ruskin associates it with the north as well. But there's always a southern gothic. So Amer- in in America, we associate the gothic with southern writers like William Faulkner, and it's all this kind of you know dreaded stuff about the Civil War and about slavery and plantations, and you know the the, the kind of legacy of that is still being worked through. But there's also an eastern gothic. So this sense of of, of the yellow peril so-called, coming from Japan or China. Um, There's a colonial Gothic, which is about um, these strange monsters that you find on the edge of empire in India or in Africa particularly or in the outback in Australia. Uh, And there's also a Western Gothic as well, that sense in which, you know, you can head west into the wilderness in America throughout the 19th century but you were encountering kind of monstrous, unknown territory, which is full of these strange uh, creatures and strange tribes. Which actually you know that your very contact as a uh, as a colonial settler are are killing off. You know because you're bringing disease with you, and 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 uh, and there's that sort of pall of of death that is driving behind this. So there are lots of landscapes, wild. Um, sublime mountains and territories of the unknown uh, but also landscapes that are uh, that that kind of anxiety increasingly doesn't come from the total outside you know from from something disturbed in the in the arctic or, or something from the wilds of america but actually erupts inside your own house and mm-hmm. that 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 sense of it coming home is a really key landscape, I think, that emerges over time. Uh, so, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde appears to be this monstrous figure who's coming from the back streets, but actually, sorry to ruin this, but actually it's Jekyll. Uh, and it's, it's actually a version of himself that he's let free uh, and it's erupting from within us. So that's a sense of the uncanniness of home uh, is very important to the modern Gothic as well.
0: Yeah, the, the haunted house, I think, is one of my own personal favourite gothic tropes in literature and, and in films. How has that evolved or changed over time?
2: Yeah, the haunted house is a, is a really good example. And I think it has changed quite, quite radically over time. So in in the in the early phase of Gothic novels, Gothic writing, uh, it's nearly always associated with ancient buildings, with ruins or with, you know, uh, abandoned places. And nearly always the narrative is about, uh, you know, fleeting images of ghosts or haunting uh, so some sort of intrusion into this space. And really, the the, the story is about investigating that and trying to unearth the true story so it might be you know this was a place of atrocity this was a place of a wrongful death that was never acknowledged and once you tell the story of the ghost the ghost is laid to rest so we we still have you know narratives like that around haunted house narratives that that work like that but what i found increasingly interesting was that there's a kind of an an opposite of that that's emerged in the 20th century which is that we are really haunted by places that have absolutely no history Uh, so hotels you know places like um, uh, institutions like mental asylums and so on that that are actually these very modern and very idealistic institutions uh, that were designed to reform people that actually sort of went horribly wrong we've decided you know these aren't great places what, what a bad idea to you know stuff thousands of mentally ill people into one space uh that didn't work uh and you know they these themselves become haunted and then they're, they're much more about you know the the uneasy sort of anonymous places, uh, corridors, um, tunnels in, in tube stations, hotels that have no history and yet seem to leak all of these, these strange ghosts and monsters in, in their basements or in their, um, in their strange interstitial spaces. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of change across the history of, of um, the haunted house from this ancient thing to a very kind of modern, unnerving place. Mm.
0: Something we see as well throughout the history of the Gothic, whether it's Dracula or then in the modern age films like Midsummer and The Witch, is this this idea of folk horror and a tension between urban and rural and fears about um, rural communities. Where do you think you can you can see that changing?
2: yeah, folk horror is a really good example of um, something that's kind of emerged very recently. So no one talked about folk horror until about 2010. uh, And now it's become one of the key ways of thinking through contemporary kind of gothic. And we tend to bounce back into the 1970s to see uh, films like The Wicker Man as being the quintessential uh, folk horror story. So that's a story of of a policeman who is sent to a remote Scottish island to investigate a disappearance and it turns out that he's going to be uh, caught up in some ancient ritualistic uh, sacrifice. Um, So that's a kind of classic uh, folk horror thing. But actually, of course, the use of folklore um, goes all the way back to the beginning of the Gothic. So uh, werewolves are centuries old. This idea that there are some men who might turn into wolves, who might let their bestial nature overturn take them periodically that's that that's a really kind of crucial idea of folklore and the vampire again is something that that kind of emerges from a folklore position in peasant cultures at the edges of empire and then becomes a kind of fictional trope so you can begin to see that actually uh, the use of folklore or what is called the folklore-esque things that sound like folklore but aren't urban myths and, and so on? Slenderman's is a really good example of this, you know, an internet myth actually uh, that that that's emerged just through the through the leaking of this story in, in into the technology, and people begin to believe it, begin to act on on this kind of myth. So you can see folklore as being really central. To the Gothic. And actually, that roots it in a really ancient, centuries old set of traditions. So it's both a very, very modern uh, genre, the Gothic, 18th century, the Enlightenment, uh, the recognisably modern world. But it's also all about what survives, what the legacy is of ancient mythology. We thought we'd got over this. We thought we'd superseded all of these superstitions. And here they come roaring back as soon as you hear a creak on the stair at three o'clock in the morning.
0: Yeah. Um we've spoken about Gothic monsters throughout the conversation, werewolves, vampires, zombies. But I wanted to ask you what your own personal favorite Gothic monsters were. Maybe some that tell us something about the time in which they were created.
2: Yeah, I think, well, everyone has their favorite monster, don't they? And I think um I'm always quite intrigued recently by the much more formless um, monsters, so things that don't necessarily um, manifest um, in physical shape at all. And actually, I find that the most kind of unnerving. Um, so things like th- the mist uh, film, which you know, it's only at the very end that you begin to see these creatures uh, emerging from the mist. Before, it's a kind of you know, vague um, cloud of, of menace. Uh, or there is a film called The Wind, uh, which is set on the very border. Of the um, uh, of, of the western edge of the wilderness in America in the 19th century, and that that again, that's just gusts of wind for a long time. Uh, how frightening is that? Well, quite unnerving. Um, Algernon Blackwood wrote a great uh, novella called uh, *The Willows*, which is just simply. the the willows, these these willows shaking a lot at night and there's just the sound which completely freaks out uh, the narrator who thinks that there is something from another world trying to get into our world Uh, and all it is is a natural landscape nothing, nothing kind of there Uh, some people might have seen the final destination films which is where um, you know death runs after people but you never see this creature you never see this thing, it just manipulates the world around you to create what seem to be accidents So you get these very elaborate, very funny as well, um, deaths which are kind of manipulated just by the environment around you. So there are so so my favorite monsters are actually those you can't see, uh, which might not be a very satisfying answer, I suppose. Um, there's also something very interesting about tentacles, I think, and 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 kind of tentacular creatures, uh, because I think they're so alien, they're so other, so they don't reflect us back. The zombie is just us, reflected back, they're just humans who've gone into a different phase so are vampires actually uh usually they're just kind of contaminated uh versions of us but 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 octopus they're completely alien we don't understand them at all you know they have they have really weird kind of um physiology that makes no sense to us we don't understand it um or eels we don't know how they reproduce. That's crazy. So there's this kind of this other physiology, I think, which the Gothic uses and has used very recently. Again, someone like Lovecraft is very influential in that because, you know, he he actually had a phobia of shellfish. And you can tell that in, in his fiction because there's all of these kind of, you know, tentacles and uh, horrifying kind of protuberances um, that, that he just... Uh, create absolute revulsion in him so I think that is that that's another kind of area which I think is very interesting
0: that point about Lovecraft bringing his own personal baggage as it were to his gothic is interesting who do you think are some of the figures that have had the most influence on the development of gothic
2: that's also a really, really good question. And I think, you know, there are there are versions of the Gothic which have, you know, obvious kind of progenitors. So uh, Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s wrote these kind of classic Gothic romances set in, usually in castles, uh, remote in Italy or in Spain or in France, uh, with a long, uh, elaborate, menacing threat to the heroine. You can see that everywhere still. Edgar Allan Poe is a really important figure, I think, as well. For this, the short story, uh, someone who was completely obsessed with premature burial and was, you know, kind of terrified of it. Uh, and you can see that coming up again and again in his kind of short stories. But it's the idea of concision and, and of shortness, what he called a kind of, you know, a, a, a harmonious kind of one sitting story was really important for him to, to get the the effect of horror that he wanted. So that's very important. And then someone like HG Wells, Fuse's the old gothic with modern uh, scientific romance, what we now call science fiction. So that fusion was very important as well. Lots of things come from that. And then I think no one can avoid uh someone like Anne Rice or Stephen King in the 1970s. That's the kind of key moment of those become massive bestsellers. Uh, the interview with a vampire, but also um, The Shining or Carrie, you know, those books by uh, Stephen King were really, really important for updating all of this old uh, material
0: so you mentioned the 1970s as a golden age of gothic before what do you see as uh, going on at that time that led that to happen was it the emergence for example of just some incredibly popular books from stephen king that started off a trend or do you think that there was something going on in terms of historical background
2: underneath all that yeah, it's it's always an intriguing kind of question to ask why the nineteen seventies is such an important uh, moment. I think there are there are several answers. Always, I mean, one would be I think uh, a kind of shift in uh, the thresholds of censorship. So there's a breakdown of, um, a, a, of the Hollywood Code. Uh, in 1968, which had kind of really limited what you could represent. And suddenly that was just abandoned. The studios abandoned it. So you get incredibly explicit films emerging. Uh, Really, really kind of violent uh, imagery as well. And then someone like Stephen King immediately a massive million bestseller, you know, straight away with his um, early work. Uh, and the, that seems to answer something about the kind of strife and uh, collapse of, of authority in the 1960s, um, a very violent decade, Vietnam is still going on, um, assassinations, and then also, you know, just straightforward social anxieties like the rise of feminism. And, and, and that's really important, I think, for... Uh, both women using the gothic to 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 try and address some of these anxieties, but also it can be very conservative, you know, and, the, and these films can become very punitive about women who express themselves sexually or independently. So all of that, you know, slasher horror films, say like um, Halloween, is it's it's really difficult material because um it's it's clearly punitive uh towards women at times uh and then again you know subsequently people have reworked it and revised it lots of women directors have come in and done really interesting things with that slasher genre so i think the 70s is a is a kind of rupture in the in the in the period in england there was um a huge depression uh social breakdown the rise of punk music um the fears of, uh, of decline, uh, collapse of, uh, of, of the long post-war boom. So, you know, horror is really good for addressing the kind of miseries of that period. So I think that's why there's an eruption in England, slightly different question in America, and you can see it being copied and transformed and mutated across the world.
0: I wanted to ask you what some of your own personal favourite Gothic cultural moments are.
2: Okay, so I always have to confess, as a you know uh, an earnest professor of literature, that the only reason I am a professor of literature is because of Stephen King's *The Shining*, uh, which I read at you know a very kind of um, impressionable age, and also the film, which came out in nineteen seventy nine, uh, was w- was a huge kind of impression on me, not because it's. Uh, particularly gory or violent, just because of its its sort of sense of menace. But actually, you know, it's it's an amazing book. I would really encourage people to go back and read it because it's it, you know this hotel is a bearer of all of the uh, of the atrocious history uh, of America in really quite intriguing ways. That doesn't appear in very much in the film, but actually the the book is extraordinary. And it was just that kind of sense of how is this how is this novelist doing this to me, you know, to to have this kind of effect on me? uh, It's really quite extraordinary. You can kind of, you're both sort of outside it. This is preposterous. This is ridiculous because after all, it's a, Often collapses into comedy, doesn't it? Horror, you reach for the sublime, but actually you collapse back into the ridiculous. And I think lots of horror fans have have a really strong sense of humour as well. You know, so they know that what they're watching is ridiculous or preposterous. You know, you should never go to the basement or go up the stairs, but you always do. Those sorts of things are are, are really kind of crucial. So I think there are there are cultural moments that have really um, struck home, uh, and you see them. Because the first effect was so powerful, you see them endlessly repeated. But, you know, one of the most famous probably recently was the um, Japanese film Ring, uh, which came out in the late 1990s. Now... The idea of of a long black haired woman crawling out of a television towards you sounds ridiculous. But actually, the first time you see it, it's the most extraordinary, terrifying thing, uh, which can um, shock even the most jaded of, you know, kind of horror film fans. And that, of course, has been that that initial shock effect has been repeated over and over again to lessening effect every time. But it's that kind of inaugural moment that does that. And again, I think I'm someone who's edited um, Jekyll and Hyde, which I think has been hugely important for a psychological gothic, so the split self, uh, the idea that you don't know yourself is really kind of quite a powerful modern sort of idea. Very kind of powerful. Or the yellow wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's short story about a woman who is narrating without realising it her own kind of mental breakdown as she's sort of imprisoned uh, in this nursery by her entirely benign husband, who's trying to help her. But nevertheless, it's a kind of gothic story happening at another level at the same time. It's it's a very wonderful. Odd Story, which I would really recommend people go and check out. So those are some.
0: Finally, we, we've spoken a lot about um, how gothic has been used to talk about anxieties of the age, and it's changed to reflect those anxieties. So where do you see gothic
2: going next? Well, I think the great thing about the gothic is that it's entirely <clears throat> unpredictable, so it's, it's really very um, surprising and and it's often written off. Genres often are, you know, you see lots of uh, essays about, oh, this is the end of science fiction or this is the end of the Gothic. And of course, something new comes along and totally transforms uh, the form. So it's very unpredictable where it goes. I think at the moment, we've all become, uh, as, as kind of Gothic readers, very interested in a kind of transnational or global forms of of the Gothic. So, what happens to it when it's picked up in? Uh, say Thailand by filmmakers what happens when it goes to Africa particularly you know that's a sense of of how is it how does it get rewritten such a rich tradition of of mythology and folklore that we aren't necessarily familiar with in the west that we're introduced to through these new kinds of fiction so it has in fact gone very global now uh, and there are fresh voices coming through all the time a huge subculture which supports this i was just looking briefly uh yesterday at a uh, i googled women horror film makers and came up with a list of 249 i think in the last 10 years uh so that's a sense of of of, of people people who haven't necessarily had voices in in the genre always or not always acknowledged, coming through and really using it in interesting ways. So some of the most interesting work, you know, of of late, has been focused on that. Really interesting horror films about migrants or migration, great film little film called his house or a film about haunting called Atlantique which is about migrants who drown and then sort of come back as as these spectral um, figures there's a really rich kind of engagement with our contemporary culture that's what you always get from the gothic you always get that. Um, I would say, kind of quite political, social engagement with the world around it. Rather than it being an escapist thing, which of course it can be, it can also be this very, very turned on and engaged uh, form of writing. That was Roger
0: Luckhurst. His book, Gothic, and Illustrated History, is out now published by Princeton. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.